0: And it's great to be with you these next few weeks uh, preaching here in chapel today is ephesians but the next two weeks are going to be from matthew's gospel this is just the sampler you've heard it said you can't be too heavenly minded or you won't be any earthly good too heavenly minded to be any earthly good that's what they say that if you think about heaven you can make no practical difference in this world well let me tell you a story of when i got converted when i became heavenly-minded i didn't grow up in a christian home my parents were probably god-fearers rather than jesus believers and in that home i was intrigued by the necklace my mum wore which had a little man on a cross so when I was invited at high school, when I was in second form or year seven, to come along to the Christian Fellowship, I was kind of open to it, open to thinking about what Christians believed. On this one particular day, uh, a, a film was shown, of course it wasn't, it wasn't a, a video as you might think of a video today, it was reel to reel, right? There was, you know, it actually involved real, real live uh, celluloid, and on this movie, A magician was doing a trick he took a dirty cylinder and placed over the top of it a blood-colored cylinder removed the outer cylinder and what do you know the the internal cylinder is no longer dirty but clean and he said on the film that's what happened when Jesus died he makes you clean on the inside and you know what it was like an atomic explosion in my head i I can still vividly recall the feeling the moment when all of a sudden the lights went on when i understood why jesus died i knew that he had died right because mum had worn the necklace with the dying man on it but no one had ever explained to me why he died to make me clean on the inside that moment when i became heavenly minded was the moment of my practical usefulness in this world see christians believe and christians pray christians expect god to break in To bring heaven forward. To make a difference in our lives and in the world. That's what we pray. That's what we believe. That's what we've built our lives upon. God's the kind of God who breaks in with explosions in the head, as it were, to make us different and to put us to use. Now, in these verses from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, Paul is describing what it means to have that kind of head explosion, what it means to be truly converted, what it means to be heavenly minded. Now, he assumes they are, from verse 15, for this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've never stopped giving thanks for you. He's writing to these believers in Ephesus, fully persuaded. They're Christians. They have faith and love. That's what the signs are. And he keeps praying for them. They're already Christians, but he keeps praying for them nonetheless, remembering them in his prayers. What does he pray? Verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father or the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, I take it that's the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. The Father of glory, the Father who belongs to the next world, might send his Spirit to us and give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation the word revelations the word apocalypse god's breaking in with with in- increased understanding for us that we might know him better we already know him of course but that we might continually have him break in, that we might know him better and better and better. The things that we already know, that we were chosen before the foundations of the world, that Christ died for us, that he's prepared for us a place in glory. Those we already know. Now Paul's praying, I want you to know that better and better. Or in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This revelation, this apocalypse, this in-breaking in our minds can be described as an enlightening of our inside eyes so that we might understand hope, where we're headed, the hope to which he has called us, and the fact that we, his people, are his inheritance. We possess the world. Look at all the words here that pick up the idea of God breaking in. The father of glory, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the inside eyes being lit up, our hope, our calling, our inheritance. God's the kind of God who breaks through. He is the ultimate disruptive technology. He's the one who is all the time trying to renovate and recreate our lives and our world. I haven't ever taken Uber, but I've at least downloaded the app. (laughs) I'm in a bind because in Victoria at least, it's illegal to offer a lift, though it's not illegal to take one. So if you're getting in an Uber car, the way the law stands in Victoria at the moment, you are not doing anything wrong, though the driver is doing something wrong in offering it to you, which kind of makes me feel like I'm doing something wrong too, right? Uber as a disruptive technology is kind of living in two worlds at once and our law hasn't yet caught up with it. We don't really know what to do with this new kind of ride sharing. We are, as Christians, in two kinds of worlds at once, as well. Of course, we're living in this world, but the new world has begun to break in to our lives, experience, our knowledge, and our world. We, of course, in the first half of Ephesians 1, have every spiritual blessing in Christ, but the expectation is in the second half of Ephesians 1 that we'll grow further and further into this knowledge. Something new has begun. But we have got to get used to the gift, the provision, the assurance that we are headed in the right path. Now, I pray more than ever these days that God would lead many, many people to Christ every day in Melbourne. Whether I'm involved or not, I'm praying more and more heartily for God's Spirit to be poured out for men and women, boys and girls, to come to faith in Christ, even this day. Because I believe in a God who disrupts things, who breaks through, who does something new. But of course, even you and I who are Christians need to grow in the knowledge and trust in that very God who breaks through. But the passage is even more remarkable yes paul's praying that the eyes of their inner hearts might be enlightened and that we'd understand more and more the hope to which we've been called that we're in his inheritance and therefore richly blessed but he wants us to know as well that god gives us power not just knowledge to achieve that look at the way in verses 19 and 20 that the word power is used three or four times in the original in different vocabulary to make his point thick Paul prays that they might know his, that's God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty power, the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. We might know God's plans, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world and Christ died for us, rose for us, that we have an eternal hope. But Paul also prays that you'd know that not just in your head, but subjectively, powerfully in your soul as well. He wants us to experience the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead in your own heart and mind. Not just that God has plans, but that God offers power. In the first half of Ephesians 1, we learned that we receive pardon through his blood. In the second half of Ephesians 1, we learned that we receive power through Christ's exaltation. God's power, the power he, that raised Jesus from the dead, that's available to you and to me... Is greater than any power we will otherwise feel constrained by a power of sin that has you captive a power of your family that you never think you can break free from the power of our culture which is so pernicious now God's power the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us to God's great praise and glory. Of course, in the West, traditionally, we've understood one of the great enemies as guilt, which needs forgiveness. In some parts of the world, the great enemy is shame, which requires new honour. But there are other parts of the world where the great obstacle is fear, and the antidote to fear is power. The Christian message, Christ's exaltation from the dead and his being seated at the right hand of the Father, demonstrates the power of God that's good news to many in our world. I was talking recently to a friend who is working with a husband in Tanzania in student ministry, and Tammy had given a talk in tanzania against the prosperity gospel fair enough as far as you'd think but what her audience heard her saying was that in the christian message there is no power to overcome the obstacles of this life so they came to her after the talk and said does that mean you really want us to go back to the witch doctor and at the stage, Tammy starts panicking. No, I don't want to go to the witch doctor. That's not, that wasn't what I wanted you to take away from this message at all. But in the minds and hearts of those her listeners, if Christ didn't provide power, then the only place you could receive power to overcome all the fears of your world was the witch doctor in the village. No, we need to acknowledge and receive the power God wants to give I think we're actually quite nervous about using the language of power because either we feel it means we have power over sickness and we'll never suffer or we're nervous about power because we've seen that power corrupts and people have misused power it's in the news each day this week We're quite nervous about using the language of power, and I understand that there's good reason. But our evangelical forebears, the great revivalists of the 18th century, used the language of power pretty insistently. Their biggest tag was the church needs the power of godliness, a phrase from the apostles' own writings. They weren't scared of praying down God's power but perhaps it's just that more recently evangelicals have chased the wrong kinds of power a report I read last week described evangelicals in the United States going after potential President Trump because they feel so powerless in their culture they feel like a man who doesn't actually represent particularly well their theological convictions, nonetheless can help them feel powerful again. Should we be seeking out that kind of power? Is that what the Apostle in Ephesians 1 is asking of us? Now, if we want power religion, in verses 22 and 23, we find it... Not in the world, but in the church. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that's ours for those who believe, that very same power raised Jesus not only from the dead, but brought him to sit at the right hand of the Father, the one who's subjected all other powers under his feet. As we read in verse 22, God placed all things under Christ's feet, Appointed him to be head over everything, the ruler of the world. But notice that Christ is head over everything, the ruler of the world, for the church. That God's power, concentrated on Christ, raised from the dead, is now ours to access that everything that Christ does in this world is to benefit the church. That power is being channeled towards us, no matter who's elected as president of the United States. God will use it for the good of his church. And this church, the most important institution in the world, further described in verse 23 as the body of Christ he's the head and we are the body we're different from the world the world is not the body of Christ we are the body of Christ we are the ones in whom it says in the second half of 23 the fullness of him dwells in the Old Testament God filled the tabernacle or he filled the temple it was clear when God's presence was there though of course in Ezekiel he withdraws his presence from the temple to punish his people but when Paul uses the language here of the church being God's fullness or the fullness of Christ he's saying this is where God's presence dwells this is where God's promises can be heard this is where God's purposes are being fulfilled If you wanna have access to God, you don't go seeking access to him through political power-hungry pursuits. This is where God makes himself available. This is where God makes himself accessible. This is where God is present even now. And indeed, this church, this body, this fullness of him is just the down payment, is just the beginning for eventually the whole world will be filled with Christ. We are the church, we're the future of the world. Not because of our own efforts, our own achievements, but because that's the plan into which God has called us. Indeed, we see a glorious picture of christ filling the world in revelation 21 when the temple the bride descends to dwell here forever friends the church is the ultimate disruptive technology the church is the ultimate sign that god is breaking in breaking through doing something new doing something different the church is the place where we can find assurance that we belong to the new world of course the the proverb goes if you're too heavenly minded you can be no earthly good but actually I want us to be more heavenly minded more theologically minded so that we can understand the power God has given to us make a difference if you want to be theologically minded can i welcome you to ridley college for here we are learning to make a difference so let me pray oh please dear god give to us your gifts this day and help us know that here amongst your people celebrating the fullness Of his body we might know power the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead please help us to value the church to serve the church please help us to know how we might as the church demonstrate your priorities your values your coming kingdom do this we ask In Jesus' strong name. Amen. Thank you, Grace.